The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapters 8 and 9. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked. And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, 
and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. We love to study the Bible. We want to teach what the Bible has to say. Some of the passages are difficult to understand. Some of it requires some um, study and some thought. Today's text is one of them. We're going to do that this morning. And um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us and we're going to jump right in. Father, we do believe that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. The Christian reads your word and finds uh, an inner witness that, that your word speaks to their spirit and their spirit says this is true. That even when it confronts our will, even when it challenges us, even when it speaks evil to us in a sense, says things we don't want to hear, we still have a sense in our soul it's true. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you that how your word testifies to its own truthfulness. This morning, I ask that you would do the same. I ask that you would make your truth plain, make your truth clear, that it would speak hope to us in difficult times. God, I need you to help me. I need you to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. And I know you do not control me like a puppet. I am up here um, and I can speak foolish words of my own thoughts. And I ask that you would um, keep me from doing that. You would hide me behind your your word, then your word would be um, powerful, authoritative. It would cut through darkness. It would cut through hearts that have been, um, had to have layers upon layers of calcium and scars upon it, that you could cut through those 
and you could soften us, you could lay us wide open, and you could implant the word of God as a seed in our heart and bring new life and new fruit and new behaviors out of that this morning. All for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. Well, if you are just joining us, we are working our way through the book of Revelation. It is the last book of the Bible, and it's all about God's ultimate plan to renew the heavens and the earth. But as I said last week, any great remodeling project first begins with Demo Day. If you want an open floor plan in your old house, you're going to have to go in there with a sledgehammer and a sawzall and start ripping out drywall and knocking out studs. And it always, any remodeling project always gets a whole lot worse before it gets any better. Now listen, the same is true for God's plan to renew all things. There is a whole lot of demo work that needs to be done. Listen, demo work in us, demo work on our world, and demo work even in the spiritual world. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. The evil, we don't use that word very often, though we should. The evil that has infected humanity, the world, and the spiritual world must be confronted and driven out. In other words, that evil must be judged by God. It must be separated from all that is good. And all the physical and spiritual world must be rectified. That means must be made right. In order to rectify something that's broken and maligned, you've got to get the broken, you got to get rid of the brokenness. You got to bring healing. Same with our world. Evil's got to be judged. Now, this is, is such an important scene in the story of God that God will replay it in the book of Revelation at least, I mean, just several times at least. And we call this, this literary technique progressive recapitulation. Big words, I get it. Here's what it is. You tell the story and then you tell it again from a different perspective and you add in some details and then you tell it again from another point of view to communicate more details. And each time you tell the story, you get a little more detail and you get a little more intense as you move towards your final goal. And the final goal that we're moving towards in the book of Revelation is the final ultimate judgment of evil we call judgment day where evil will be ultimately destroyed that's what we're working towards now this process of progressive recapitulation really begins today or it could we could say the process started last week but the first recapitulation we see today in chapters 8 and 9 the judgment of god that was poured out last week through the seven seals is going to be, listen, replayed this week in chapters 8 and 9 with the seven trumpets. And then it's going to be replayed again in chapter 16 with the seven bowls, all right? So the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls here are not 21 different events, 
that unfold chronologically at the end times. If you've read the book Left Behind or seen the awful movies Left Behind, that's how they tell the story. They think each one of these events is its own separate event and it just gets worse and 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 worse. That's not what's really going on here. As you read them, common sense should tell you that. You should have an awareness that something's going on that's a little different here. Today in our first trumpet, all the grass gets burned up, right? Then in the fifth trumpet, these crazy locust demon things are told not to harm the grass on the earth, right? He's writing this. He's not illogical, right? And he's not talking about, well, you know, the way you can get around that is, well, there's a long time between it. I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on. We are seeing things, for one, in the order of which John saw them. We're not seeing them necessarily in chronological order and the way that they'll unfold. And secondly, if you read the book of Revelation, and specifically the middle section of the book, in chronological order, you end up saying, wait, what? God's already burned up most of the earth, and he's already killed a third of the population. What's left to burn up? Right? You start asking yourself, how many times is he raining down fire from heaven? Right? Like, judge the earth. That wasn't good enough. Do it again. <laughs> right? Did you get all your anger out? No. Do it again. One more time. Right? He's not winding it up and walking around a little while. And then he, you know what? I'm still mad about that. And that's not what God's doing. The answer is, These are not 21 different events that unfold chronologically. Rather, they are one event that is told in many different ways over and over that escalates in severity each time that culminates in the day of the Lord. So the one thing that's really going on here is the season of time where God is judging evil or God is remodeling his creation. That's what's going on. Now it culminates in the day of the Lord, but it, and it's already begun with Christ's resurrection. Okay, that, So that's what the apostle John is describing. That's what Jesus is showing us here. So in a lot of ways, our two chapters this morning are very similar to our two chapters from last week. Except they get a little more intense and a couple interesting things come into focus that John wants us to see or Jesus wants us to see. Those two things are these. One, God's answer to his people's prayers. And two, the unmasking of evil. That's where we're headed today. So first... God's answer to his people's prayer. Let's jump in. Do you remember from last week how the Christians who had been martyred for their faith, many thousands of Christians have been killed for their faith in the last um, 2,000 years, and we see this picture in the book of Revelation where they're crying out, right? They're crying out for God to do what? To avenge their death. They're, They're at the altar, and they're saying, God, how long are you going to let unbelievers persecute Christians and and malign your glory and get away with evil? How long are you going to allow evil to run on this earth? They cried out, they said this, how long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
These saints are wanting God, the true judge, to judge the wicked and give justice to the innocent and oppressed. The term here, earth dweller, will recur several more times throughout the book. And it means the people who worship the creation rather than the creator. It's another name for a person who does not follow Christ or serve him as Savior and Lord. Now, this prayer from the saints is a prayer that's actually written down over 60 times in some form or another throughout the Bible. The Psalms are full of it. How long, O Lord? It's a prayer of exasperation. It's a prayer that rises from a soul that is running out of patience and long-suffering. How long will the wicked succeed? How long will those who hate your name rule the kingdoms of men? How long will cheaters and blasphemers oppress the innocent? How long will politicians lie for their own personal gain? One example, Psalm 74, 10 through 11, came up in my reading this week. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Christian brother and sister, isn't this one of our most basic and instinctual prayers as we look out upon the brokenness of our world? How long, O oh Lord, will be children how long, O oh Lord, will children be murdered in their mother's wombs? How long? You're making me nervous up here. What's going on? All right. How long, O oh Lord, will racism separate those who have been made in your image? How long, O oh Lord, will nation Rage against nation. How long will children starve because of their nation's poor leadership? How long, O oh Lord, will we have to deal with the temptations that so easily entangle us? How long will cancer eat away at our bodies? How long will depression steal the lives away from those whom we love? What we see here in chapter 8 is actually one of the great benefits of being a Christian, even though in the moment, most of the time we are unaware of it, God hears the prayers of his saints. And the answer to these prayers are twofold. First, it's the same answer he gave to the saints in chapter 6, where he basically said, not much longer, son. Not much longer. How much? He's like, be patient. Chill out here. You're in heaven. You're good. Wait. Be patient. Just a little bit longer. 
But then secondly, the final answer to our prayers is what we see in the rest of chapters eight and nine. He answers our prayers in ways we didn't think possible. We didn't conceive of these, but this is how he answers our prayers. Chapter eight and nine is the moment oh, when God moves. When God answers these prayers for justice for the oppressed and to vindicate the holiness of his great name. Do you realize that's what we were singing in that last song that we just sang? I know all we hear is like angelic voices when we hear it. You know, we hear like, you know, the, 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 the kind of like the choirs in the Catholic church. When we hear, sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And we're just kind of singing it out of ritual and we have no idea what's going on. One of the reasons I like to sing it in the gathering is because it puts the words up there for you and you can go, oh, this isn't a nice, neat song. This is a song of people who are crying out in darkness. They feel like Israel when they were carried off into Babylon. They feel like Israel before the Exodus. And they're saying, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And they're praying, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Come, rid this world of darkness. Rid this world of brokenness. It's a song that's praying for God to come and do what he's about to do in chapters eight and nine. Now, let's jump into it. I got a long way to go. Chapter 8, verse 1, open up your Bibles, go with me. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Golden censer. Think of, most of us don't know, even know what a censer is, but it's, like it's like, kind of like an urn. It's kind of like a thing that you put incense in, and you burn incense, and, it, and, it, and the incense rises up, and it makes the place smell really good, okay? Um, well, what is that incense, Right? The pr- with the prayers of all, or on verse three, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, look, with the prayer of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So here's the image. Are the Christian's prayers... They rise before God like incense rises up when you burn it. They rise up and God can smell it. God can hear them. God is is made aware of them in a sense, all right? So the prayers of how long, O Lord, are going before God. He's hearing our prayers. Now, how is he going to, what's he going to do? He hears the prayers? What's he going to do? Verse five. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. God is answering the prayers of his people. Here it is. By forcefully moving against all the evil in the world. Now, this is really interesting. A couple years ago, we worked verse by verse through the book of Exodus. And there, if you remember, the people were in a very similar spot. They were slaves in Egypt and they were violently mistreated and they were forced to work incessantly for the evil ruler Pharaoh. Then in Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25, they say this. The people of Israel 
groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. This is where they're saying, how long, O Lord? Their cry for rescue from slavery, look, look, came up to God like the incense and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The Israelites' cry of how long, O Lord, was heard. And then listen, God bent down to rescue them. God sent Moses. And then what did Moses do? God sent the 10 plagues to what? To judge the evil ruler, Pharaoh. And it's interesting, as we studied that, the 10 plagues were all targeted against 10 different idols, the 10 gods, the 10 top gods of Egypt. Each one represented one of the Egyptian gods. And God judged Egypt and he set his people free from their slavery. Well, here's what's going on. In a sense, what happened in Exodus was the trailer to the movie we are seeing here in the book of Revelation. Exodus was the prequel to what we see going on in the book of Revelation. What God did for a particular people group in the nation of Israel, he is now going to do for all believers over all the world and even the spiritual world. That's why when we're singing you know, about Israel and, and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we're not just talking about the nation of Israel. We're talking about the people of God. We're talking about us who've been welcomed into the covenant. God is going to judge evil and rescue his people. And what's fascinating is that all of these judgments we're about to see in chapters eight and nine line up with the judgments that were poured out upon Egypt in the Exodus. Now, I want to show you this slide. It's a little nerdy, but bear with me. They don't go in chronological order, but look at the trumpets in Revelation. The first trumpet, we see hail and fire pouring out on the earth. Well, that lines up with the seventh plague of Exodus with hail and fire going on the earth. The second trumpet in Revelation, the sea turns to blood, one third of living creatures die. Well, in the first plague, the Nile turns to blood and everything in it dies. The third trumpet, rivers and springs are made bitter. The first, the first, the rivers, canals, they're all filled with blood. The fourth trumpet, one third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. In the ninth plague, there's three days of darkness. In the fifth trumpet, darkness, locusts like scorpions. In the ninth and eighth, you have darkness and you have locusts. In the sixth trumpet, angels are released. Mounted troops, fire, smoke, sulfur, kill one-third of humanity. And in the tenth plague, we have the death angel coming in and destroying anyone who does not have the blood on the doorpost. We see everyone getting killed in this scene who does not have the seal of God on their forehead. In the 10th trumpet, an angel wrapped in a cloud with legs like pillars of fire. And of course, Israel is led out of Egypt by the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. This is nothing new in a sense that we're seeing. God has whispered that he's going to renew all things and he's going to judge evil. And when he does it, he's, it's going to bring, it's going to have a, uh, it's going to be catastrophe first. And now it's playing out at the end of all things. Let's keep reading verse six. 
Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Now, this could be physical, this could be literal, but also in the Old Testament, great mountains also also often represent kingdoms. So this could be the toppling of a great kingdom. Was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Ten, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of this star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. means became poisonous. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck. And a third of the moon and the stars, their light might be darkened. And a third of the day might be kept from shining. And likewise, a third of the night. So the first four trumpets here affect the earth, the sea, the rivers and lakes, and the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. Here we have all of the created world being subjected to the judgment of God against evil. Now listen, evil, the, the earth, uh, Romans 1 tells us that the earth itself is groaning as in childbirth, waiting for God to come and do this. And just in the providence of God, as I was reading some, some of the Psalms this week, over and over and like, the Psalms in the, in the high 80s, in the early 90s, you ha- and we quoted one this morning, you have the trees clapping their hands, you have the grass crying out, you have all creation crying out and saying this, we can't wait for the day of the Lord. We can't wait for the day of the Lord. Now, what is that? This is the day of the Lord. Creation's crying out for God to come and just looks like ruin them, right? Rain sulfur down. Well, this is about... In my, let me just do, make this estimation. This is a person with cancer crying out for its removal. And though the removal of that cancer might require surgery, and that's going to be, I'm going to be cut open, and pain is going to be caused, and it's going to be a long recuperation, I know that that immediate pain is going to bring a long-term good. And here we have creation itself longing for God to come and rid it of its groaning, ridded of the evil that has infected the earth itself. And here we have God doing that, and he's doing it in a very radical fashion. Then in verse 13, then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So the first four trumpets affected the created world itself. It will have some, uh, obviously, some reverberations to mankind, but the last three trumpets are targeted to, towards humanity itself, towards, quote, the earth dwellers. That's the code word for those who don't love and worship Jesus. The next two trumpets are going straight at sinful humanity itself. Now, before we read this, Let me just tell you again, John is writing down what he sees. This is a visual depiction of a spiritual reality. I believe what John is going to do here is John is trying to peel back the curtains of our imagination 
and let us see the spiritual reality of evil. We have all grown up, especially in our culture today, with a scientific understanding of the world. Now, we are 100% on board with science. We love science. We, the scientific method is great. But here's where science and scientism are different. Science says we use the scientific method to study what's in front of us. What is? To figure things out. Great. Let's do it. Let's do that. We're all for that. Scientism says if you can't study it with the scientific method, it doesn't exist. Do you see the difference? Scientism says the physical world is all there is. If you can't measure it, then it doesn't exist. Many of us, no matter how Christian we think we are, the books that we read, the shows that we watch, the music that we listen to, the cultural commentary that we pick up on, all of it is influenced by scientism. And so many of us live our days without any reality that there's something going on behind the scenes. There is a spiritual world out there that affects this physical world. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 9. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, stop. Why do I think this is spiritual? Well, he's, this angel thing, one, is coming to earth to open a bottomless pit. The Bible does not teach that the earth is flat and it goes on forever, okay? The scripture talks about God sitting over the sphere of the earth. There is no such thing as, you can't have a bottomless pit, right? We got that. But in the spiritual world, you can, right? Secondly, this angel or this, I'm sorry, this star that falls down from the sky is most likely Satan or some other kind of demonic lieutenant, Jesus used the same language to describe Satan and his fall in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Or as another translation put it, I saw Satan as a star falling from heaven. Satan is a spiritual being, the personification of evil. So what's going on here is that God is letting us see into the spiritual realm. We are being granted a revelation on the severity of evil, the rapacious nature of evil itself, and the desire that Satan has for every human being. His desire is made clear. It is to steal from people, to kill people, and ultimately to destroy their soul in hell. Look at verse two. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from that shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from that shaft. Then the smoke came, from, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, 
but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. Now, what is going on here? These are demons. John is seeing a spiritual reality. Some of our, my favorite literature has got great images of these types of things. In Harry Potter, you've got the Dementors. In Lord of the Rings, you've got the Nazgul. You, you've got these spirit, it's, it's, the, it's evil itself becoming physical, and yet it's not quite physical. There's something, it can affect the physical, but there's something else going on. We see these demons, though they want, their desire is to steal and kill and destroy every single human being and ruin all of God's good earth because that's what the devil wants to do. He has no creative power whatsoever. God is the only creator. All evil can do is bend creation toward, is, is mess up creation, taint creation with evil. But we see that they can't do that. They can't destroy everything because they have been given a limited authority. Scripture says they cannot harm. Jesus says they cannot harm those who have been sealed by God. Now, what does that mean? The seal of God on their forehead. Again, there's so many literalistic interpretations. People get so worried about getting a chip in their hand or getting something put on their head or what are all, these, all this stuff that's going on. Here, listen. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18 says this. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. The point there that God was making wasn't literal in the sense that they needed to tattoo scripture to their foreheads, right? It was metaphorical for their love for God. They should love God's word. They should memorize God's word. They should cherish God's word. They should obey God's word. The same is true here in Revelation. It's metaphorical. The seal of the believer that protects them from this judgment and wrath of God is the Holy Spirit that is given to the believer that brings about their own conversion. That God sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts. We hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond with faith and repentance. We repent of our sins and we place our forever faith in the person and work of Jesus. That seals the believer. That protects the believer, from their ultimate destruction, even though Satan wants to destroy them. Can I ask you this morning, have you been sealed by the Holy Spirit? Have you turned from your sins and placed your forever faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ? See, when God judges evil, there's only one place that's safe, and that's under the seal of God, secure in the arms of Christ through the power of the gospel. But 
for those who choose to turn away from Jesus, who say to God, nah, I'll take my own path. I'll be Lord over my own life. Thank you very much. For those who follow their heart instead of following Jesus Christ, there is a future torment waiting for you that I find it hard to express without choking up. Look at verse 5. These demons were allowed to torment. I think, can I just pause here? Guys, In a sense, you could say these are the devil's own people. They're people who've rejected God and didn't want anything to do with God. He's not cracking a beer open with them. He's not putting on their favorite music and, all right, let's, let's have all the sex you want. Let's just have more fun like we did on the earth. He's not doing that. His desire is not to increase your fun or increase your freedom. His desire is to torment you. That's the reality. This is what evil looks like. They were allowed to torment them for five months. Look at this. But not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. That torment, that poison gets into your body and into your bloodstream and it, and it just it's a pain that goes everywhere. Your nerve endings feel like they're on fire. This is more than just a physical torment. It's a psychological and a spiritual torment. It's a mental and spiritual trauma that is worse than death. If you've ever felt a deep, dark depression, you know some of this pain, maybe a hint of this pain. You cry out for death. You want it to stop, but look at the wickedness. The wickedness is, nah. Death says, I'm not coming. Suffering is prolonged. He wants them to suffer in anguish. Verse six, and in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death itself will flee from them. And then he goes on to explain what these things look like. In appearance, the locusts were like the horses prepared for battle on their heads. This is why I like the idea of the Nazgul. If you know the Nazgul in Lord of the Rings, the the riders, they were like horses, spiritual horses prepared for battle on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair were like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails
This is a physical depiction, again, of a spiritual reality. This is evil. If you could unmask evil for what it is, this is what it looks like. It's the demonic. Verse 11, they have as king over them, look, the angel, again, another hint that it's spiritual, the angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon. Now, in Hebrew, the word Abaddon means the one who destroys, or it means destruction, I'm sorry. In Hebrew, that word means destruction, and in Greek, the word Apollyon means the one who destroys. So both of these words mean the same. It's referring to Satan, that he is the original destroyer. He just wrecks things. That's all he does. He has no creative power in himself. He is the original anarchist who only wants to destroy. Verse 12. Listen, that's bad, but it's about to get even worse. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altars before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who've been prepared for the hour, the, oh man. Look at verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. This is set in stone. This is on God's calendar and it's going to happen. We can't make it come any sooner. We can't change anything about it. We can't predict it. Jesus said that himself. And these were given what? They were released. These demons again were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Basically, that just means millions and millions. It means a lot. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur, and the heads of horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Well, Wow, what's going on here? Well, there's two things going on. First, God is answering every Christian's prayer. Every Christian who prays, how long, O Lord, will you let evil run wild on the earth and in humanity? God at some hour in the future. It's already planned. The hour, the day, the month, the year, there's a future moment in time where God literally says, now is enough. How long, how long, how long we cry out. The saints of old have cried out. And it reaches God's ear and the incense goes up before his nostril. And in a moment in the future, God will say, now is enough. And what's interesting is God just doesn't come back first by himself. Jesus doesn't just come back right away. The first thing he does is he lets Satan loose to do what Satan wants to do. He lets Satan go out and steal and kill and destroy, still with limited authority. 
He keeps Satan from afflicting the saints here, those who've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But in one sense, what God does is he lets evil have its day. He lets evil attack itself. To those who've ignored Jesus, he basically says, you wanted evil? Well, now you can have it. You've been chasing after something other than me your whole life. Well, at this moment in time, I'm going to unmask what it is you've been chasing and let you have it. There's two great things going on here. One is, praise God, he's fixing us and he's fixing the world and he's renewing all things. And the second thing, it's necessary, but it's meant to scare us. It's meant to shock us. He's unmasking evil. Unfortunately, most of the time, evil. Like if I asked you, where's the line? When do you cross over into evil? We, we, all, would, we all would put Stalin and Lenin. We, we would all put Hitler. We would all put these people up there. We would all put the, oh yeah, that's evil, that's evil. But where's, where's the line? Most of the time, evil doesn't look very evil. Obviously, it doesn't come wearing a red suit with a pitchfork. It doesn't show up in our world most of the time looking like a Nazgul. Evil gets disguised as fun, edgy, staying true to yourself, just you being you. Just you wanting to be happy. One of the greatest, maybe the greatest trick of the devil is that he has convinced us that sin isn't actually evil. Sin is merely a slip up, it's a struggle or maybe something akin to bad manners. Don't chew with your mouth open. Sin isn't actually evil. It's just a natural thing. But look at verse 20. I think verse tw- the last few verses interpret the whole, th- give us the whole interpretive lens for these two chapters. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Stop. What? Demons are let loose on the created world. Stars are falling from the sky. Last week we saw people trying to hide themselves from the face of God. And yet there's something about these humans that are like not going to change. There is nothing natural about that. 
Why would people rather continue in their sin than turn to God and repent? Hebrews 3 says it like this. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil. Whoa, stop. Writing to Christians in a church, he's like, be careful, evil might be in you. Keep reading. Unless there be in you an evil, he clarifies what is an evil heart, an unbelieving heart, a heart that doesn't trust Christ, leading you to fall away from the living God. But do this, Christian community, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Speak the truth into each other's lives. Why? That none of you may be hardened, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, Here is the great trick of the devil. And here is the reality of sin. And here's one of its most evil components right here. Sin, when ignored. You know what it's like? It's like some kind of epoxy compound. If you know what epoxy is, you take two different components and you put them together and you mix them together and then they become harder than concrete. Sin is like an epoxy compound. When you ignore it, when you placate it, when you embrace it, when you say it's not that big of a deal, it's not affecting anybody else, nobody knows about it, it has a hardening effect on a person's heart. It it hardens your soul. Your soul is no longer permeable to God responsive to his word, soft to the the saints around you, compassionate and tender. Your conscience gets seared. What used to provoke your conscience and cause you to repent no longer is a big deal anymore. See, this is sin's deceitful characteristic. Characteristic. This is him masking himself as an angel of light. This is him saying it's no big deal, but once you bite the apple, we realize how big of a deal it is. Sin says, do this, you'll be free, but then it enslaves you. It says, this will be fun, and then it destroys you. It says, just follow your heart and you'll be happy. And then it turns your heart rock hard to God, the source of eternal happiness. One of the scariest things about sin is that you serve sin long enough and you don't even want to serve God. Judgment comes, pain comes. They're crying out for death, but they're not crying out for God. They would rather die than repent. They are slaves to their sin, and there is nothing more evil than that. Now, we're going to keep reading because I don't want this to happen to us. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up, look, worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood 
which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now listen, most of us, I believe, don't really understand what sin is. Sin isn't just doing naughty things. Sin doesn't just put you on Santa's naughty list, right? There is something incredibly evil about it, but again, most of the time we don't even realize it. This revelation here, guys, I know this doesn't seem like a Christmas message in a sense, but this is a gift to us. It allows us to see into ultimate reality, to see in the spiritual realm and see our sin for what it really is. And it shows us that ultimately, God's not just going to let it slide. He's going to judge it all and and he's going to rectify us and he's going to rectify all of creation because all sin is ultimately a personal affront to him. Now, how is that the case? Well, listen, the primary way the Bible talks about sin is through the concept of idolatry. Now, to our postmodern ears, that has some kind of like pre-modern ring to it, right? We think that idolatry is outdated. Nobody in our sophisticated culture still worships statues. But that's actually not the case. Idolatry, here it is, is simply giving the portion of worship, giving the portion of worship which belongs to God, giving that to anything else in the created world. The first fruits of your devotion. What are you devoted to? The first fruits of your love. What do you love above all things? Not in, not in just what you say you love, but what actually stirs your heart and your affections? What do you Where does your imagination go? Where's the first fruits of your imagination? If you got one hour to sit alone by yourself, do your thoughts wander to God and to his kingdom and to his mission? Or do your thoughts wander to vacations and stuff and future loves? Where does the first fruits of your time go? Your desire, your habits, your money. See, here's the deal. All of those things, by rights of creatorship, belong to God. He is your creator. For you to give God's portion to something else, that is just evil. God has given everything, God God has given us everything we have. And of course, for the Christian, he has given us even more. He's given us his son. And no one has ever loved us like this. And for you to turn away from that and you treat it like it's stale coffee compared to your career or your love interests or your kids' hobbies or your bank account is the greatest travesty in all the universe. How could any person do such a thing? Well, here's the spiritual reality. Idolatry looks benign. It looks harmless. I know, I, 
I know I should probably give, be more generous and give, but you know, I just really like my neighborhood. I just really like stuff. I just really like going on long, longer vacations or more expensive vacations. I just really like it. I know I, I should be more generous, but you know. So you see, here's what's going on. Revelation is removing the curtain. That's what it looks like in the physical world. Idolatry is harmless. Here's what's behind the idolatry. Demons. That's what we see right here. Nobody's worshiping. Very few people, maybe some Satanists, whatever. There's a few of those out there still. Very few people are worshiping demons in our world. What they're doing is worshiping idols. And behind the idols, they're not even aware of it, is spiritual reality. Idolatry looks benign, it looks harmless, but in actuality, it is demonic. See, Satan is out to steal all the glory he can that belongs to God. So he wants you to worship yourself more than God. Worship your preferences. He wants you to find your career more exciting than knowing God. But here's the progression. Those who worship idols become like that which they worship. When you worship God, you become more like him, more generous, more kind, more caring, more self-control. Go through the fruit of the spirit. But when you worship idols, you become like them. You worship money, you will become cruel like Ebenezer Scrooge, your heart as hard as the coins in your pocket. And it is usually a slow, gradual walk downhill. It's the easy way of life. So gradual that you don't even know it's happening. It can happen even though you spend a week, week after week sitting in a Sunday service. You come here for a couple hours on Sunday, but you worship money six and a half days a week. Slowly. Over time, you find yourself doing things you never thought you'd do. You find yourself doing things that I don't think I could, was capable of, of doing these things. You find yourself cheating. You find yourself lying so you don't lose out. You find yourself cheating, stealing, robbing God of his portion. See, in this text, the idolatry of the heart flows out into murders, sorcery, sexual immorality, and theft, all motivated by demonic powers. These idols that cannot see or hear or walk they're hard. They've got no true power in them, but behind them, there's a demonic presence. And here's where we see our great problem. If God were to show up today in his glory to rid the world of all evil, he just might start with you. He might start with me. 
See, evil isn't just out there. It's in here. It's in the human heart. Idolatry isn't just this benign thing that we acknowledge and we, 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 we know about. Something evil behind it, stealing God's glory. But here's the good news this morning. Probably took me a while to get here. So here's why I took why it did take so so long to get here. Especially for well, let me just say this. Sometimes the hardest thing to, to see when there is blatant evil in the world to compare yourself to, sometimes the hardest thing to see is the evil that runs through your own heart. I'm no Hitler. I'm not shooting up schools. Here's the, here's the gospel. Here's the good news. If you can sense, if you can read this and just sense the evil that's present in your own heart, if you can get a, get a glimpse of the gravity of your own sin, that my idolatry isn't benign, it's actually demonic. What have I been doing all week long? I've barely thought of the glory of God. I've barely thought about making disciples. I've barely thought about the gospel. I walked by my Bible so many times and didn't even pick it up and just turned on Netflix. What, I've been, what have I been doing all week long? And you can see behind it that it's not just natural. There's something demonic behind it. That's why it's so easy. It's like, I said it already, it's like walking downhill a slow, gradual climb. But if you can see for this moment that John gives us this revelation, he pulls back ultimate reality, and he says, those stupid little idols that you set up, whether it's your phone, whether it's power, whether it's your wife, whether it's your family, those stupid little idols, behind them is a demonic reality. And God is coming one day to judge the earth and rid it of all of its demonic influence, to get all evil out of here. The great problem for the Christian and for any person would be go, okay, how's he going to do that without destroying me? See, once we get a glimpse of our problem and our predicament, the next part is relatively easy. We look to the cross of Jesus Christ because it's on the cross of Jesus Christ where all evil has been judged. That's why we sing about death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Jesus took all the power of evil. He took it all. Every, all of the evil in our own heart, he absorbed it like a great sponge and took it to the cross and the, the father struck him and he paid the penalty for all our sins. So we can now, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, stand in the presence of God, washed in the blood of the lamb, clean, all wrath removed. This is the great gift of Christ to us. It's all grace. All, can you think of this? All the wrath, all of the outpouring of God's judgment on evil for the Christian has already been poured out on Jesus. Jesus himself took it for us. The rest of our life is grace. Now here's the reality. Any person who has any type of working knowledge of that, that can keep that in their consciousness, that can meditate on that, that finds it lovely and beautiful and good, 
they're going to follow Jesus. They're going to repent of their sins. They're going to walk with other Christians. They're going to cry out for God to come and do it soon. God, come, come and do it soon. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're crying out for God in this third week of Advent. See, our ultimate joy is on the other side of this event. God removing evil from the world. Let me pray for us. Father, not an easy topic, not an easy thought. Something that goes against many of our modern sensibilities. We all want evil to be gone, but we want, most of us want it in some other way some simple fashion that you could just take a giant eraser and just erase it off the, the globe and just make everyone hold hands and sing Kumbaya and be happy together. There is no other way. You've judged evil in its finality in two ways. You've judged it in the cross of Christ and you will judge it in the day of the Lord. For those who come under Christ, who have the seal of the Holy Spirit on their foreheads. This life right now is the worst they will ever experience. And for those who have not put their faith in Christ, this life right now is the best they will ever experience. Father, I pray that we would flee from the wrath of God and we would flee to the cross of Christ and you would set us on fire for you with this message of the gospel that everyone can find redemption in Christ. Would you soften hearts, Holy Spirit? Would you do the work that only you can do? Would you send us out as messengers of this gospel, sharing our faith, sharing our lives with others? And this morning, Father, as we come to your table, would you feed us? Feed us with your body, Jesus. Nourish us with your blood that we've been saved from the wrath of God through you absorbing that wrath on our behalf. We eat today thinking of the cross. We eat today thinking about your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.